So in this episode of the Neil Wilkins podcast, I am joined by Karian Tharakan, who is, I guess you could say, multifaceted when it comes to the art of charisma, compelling storytelling, and the art of communications. Um, Karian is the author of The Seven Essential Stories Charismatic Leaders Tell, amongst a host of other things, which we are going to hopefully dive deeply into so if you are in need of more effective communications, leadership style, or really experimenting with different styles of communication, then you are listening to the right episode. So welcome to the show, Karian. Thanks for having me on, Neil. The, uh, you know, it's, I've done a lot of things uh, in the last 30 odd years. And uh, ultimately, you know, at my core, um, I'm a salesman. At my core, I'm a salesman, and uh, I've always had sales and marketing roles, which are very different in the various organizations I've been with. So I've done, I've been in um, the technology space, I've been in mergers and acquisitions, corporate finance, I've been in uh, digital marketing uh, services, you know, all sorts of different things. But at the core of it is that everybody has the need to sell first their ideas and then their subsequent products and services. And I was a, uh, I was an executive of residence in a couple of different business incubators here in the Edmonton region. I'm, I'm way up here in Canada, across the pond, as you would say, right? And uh, here in Alberta, Canada, and there's a couple of uh, business incubators I was with, and I was working with you know numerous, numerous university uh, spin-outs, engineers, scientists, PhDs of various kinds, and they were all trying to launch a new product or a new service. And they never went to school for uh, any kind of a sales or marketing uh, perspective, right? Yet they were forced now to go out and sell their ideas to investors and employees, let alone the markets as a whole. And so we really needed to come up with a format for them where they're not being taught Dale Carnegie type of uh, methodologies or even, you know, sophisticated uh, methods like the base method or anything like that. Even spin. Spin is a very, very common uh, framework for doing this and really easy to understand. But for the most part, these uh, entrepreneurs who are actually scientists and engineers, uh, they needed something that was easier than that, right? And something that they could go into and not really be considered consider themselves as selling because selling is not what they went to school for. But here they are, they're being forced in the situation. And probably the easiest thing to, in the world to do for everybody to, uh, to be able to be more persuasive, because we all need to be more persuasive, is to tell better stories. And that's where it came from. And so this idea of uh, writing a book around the kinds of stories that people have told through the millennia, through millennia, to bring people into the tent uh, have rested on these seven pivotal pillar stories that uh, charismatic leaders have used uh, throughout time. That's where it all started. Mm, that's interesting. So, so this is kind of really based on, you know, anecdotal evidence from your journey, which obviously has been, you know, really, really interesting and very broad and uh, very relevant, I guess, to, to the topic. But also, there's some science behind this, isn't there? Because yeah. as you kind of delve into a number of these areas, and we will go to um, to these seven areas for, for the audience uh, in a little while, but I, I'm just curious, really, as to kind of how did you kind of create the seven? Because 
there must be probably more than seven, but you've prioritized that there are seven, which are the, yeah, the most fundamental ones. The seven, what we say is that these are the seven primary stories. You know, there, there can be hundreds of uh, splinter stories, thousands of splinter stories that you can have. There's no end to the nuance that you can apply to. But the way we did this is that we looked uh, through the the history of written communications, let alone oral traditions and such, right? And where it came down to was uh, back in the 1970s, this, this quote always fascinated me. And that was in the 1970s during the birth of Silicon Valley. And this was uh, during the days of Fairchild Semiconductor and the early, early days of Intel, the beginning days of Apple. And this was in the mid 1970s. There was a Silicon Valley marketing guru by the name of Regis McKenna. And I remember reading about Regis, you know, 30 years ago. And this uh, quote always stayed with me. And what Regis said is that great marketing takes its cues from great religion. And so, uh, you know, and, and so if you really th think about that, you go through the historical uh, aspects of religion. Um, there's been thousands of religions throughout time, thousands. But today we have dominant religions, you know, at the top is going to be Christianity uh, with about, you know, 2.1, 2.2 billion adherents. Uh, we've got Islam with about 1.8, 1.9 billion adherents. And both of those are Abrahamic religions. They come from Judaism, you know, Father Abraham. And Judaism, surprisingly enough, only has about 15 million adherents uh, throughout the world, okay? And of course, Hinduism is up there with 800 million and on it goes. But at the core of these religions, why did these religions survive? Why do they dominate today after thousands of religions being birthed over the course of uh, humankind's uh, early attempts at civilization? You know, so human civilization where we uh, come together in a in a location. So we're not nomadic tribes people. We're not bands of hunters gathered. We come together, we grow our crops, we raise uh, farm animals, you know, for consumption, those kind of things. That's been about 13,000 years now. And this idea of religion really sprung up out of this idea that we're coming together in one place, right? We had this need now to come together and understand what was controlling what was, you know, inciting the world at large. How do we protect ourselves? How do we provide for ourselves? And religion provided that kind of basis. Now, what's interesting is that 2,000 years ago, uh, so Christianity has been around for a little over 2,000 years now. Uh, Islam has been uh, around since the 600s. Why are these the two dominant religions? And if you take a look at it back in the, you know, the early hundreds, you know, like, hundreds AD, you know, uh, from uh, the uh, death of Christ, uh, the resurrection of Christ, all the way down to uh, maybe the hundreds, two hundreds. These were just a band of nuts. They were zealots. They were crazy people that the Romans were persecuting, right? They were trying to extinguish uh, this, you know, crazy bunch of people. But somehow the religion was able to survive. Somehow was able to survive. And ultimately, we've got what it comes down to. We go back to the Regis uh, example. They had dominant stories and they had dominant values. And one of the clear, clearest values is that you bring other people into, into the tent, proselytization. So not only do you have the stories to tell in these seven categories, but then you have to share the good news with as many people as possible. And so both uh, Islam and uh, 
Christianity do this, right? Then they are able to, what is it, really dominate with these stories and bring more people to the tent. And, you know, if we take a look at it, uh, I think one of the uh, numbers that was bandied about is that uh, Christianity grew at about a 3%, 3% compounded annual growth rate since its inception in the, in the early, you know, aughts, zero, zero. Um, yeah, 32 AD, whatever that was. So that's interesting to me, you know, like, and so if that's true for religion, what can we do to help our organizations also grow in that way? And every organization, and this might be her heretical to some people, and you may not really like to hear it, but all organizations have their own religion, you know, and uh, it's not about worshiping a God, you worship values, you worship belief systems, you worship uh, principles of action that allow you to grow these ideas of transformation into something of value for the marketplace at large. So that's where it all came from. It's really, really interesting perspective. And I, and I guess once we're looking at, and we will stay on the topic of, um, you know, look, looking within the organization and within leadership and communication. But I, as you were describing that, I was thinking there's also then the spin-off uh, benefit of effective storytelling and communication to all stakeholders around the organization because you know you could see this you know the religion of certain brands I mean I would say I religiously you know use you can see the computer behind me I, I'm a, an Apple fan through and through and it, it's more than just a brand you know and, and I kind of felt a little pang of guilt there when you sort of said that because I thought yeah, it, it is kind of like a religion for me. It's like, would I use any other competing product? No, I wouldn't. So I'm kind of bought into this whole storytelling, this whole brand positioning, this lifestyle thing, which again, is that religious? Is it, you know, mythical? Is it is it brand? Is it the essence of who I am? Does it really matter? Well, yes, of course it matters because I need to see that kind of, I guess, alignment of, of values and, and purpose and that drive needs to really be authentic to me, um, either as an employee or as a customer. So, yes, there's some really interesting kind of analogies here, and I can see really how that would link up. So this is important stuff, isn't it? It really is. And in fact, you know, the, what I would ask you is that if you had to describe your loyalty to Apple and why you only buy a Macintosh or Apple products of various kinds, how would you do that? And the only way you can do that is the th uh, through the stories that you tell. And it would probably, you know, 99% of them fit within the seven primal stories that are in the book. Mm, so with that as an example, now I'm too curious. I, I had a whole bunch of other questions I wanted to ask you, but I want to get into these, these seven stages, these seven stories, because... Yeah, I need to kind of know the answer. So if anybody's listening to this and is thinking, yeah, well, I'm actually a slave to this particular brand. It might be a car manufacturer. It could be a certain food brand or like me, there's a tech brand. Make some notes here, guys, because you're going to learn a lot from this because these are seven essential stories people want from their leaders, from their brands, from their religions. This is multifaceted. So yeah. Can you kind of share with us then, Karen, the, the kind of the way that this kind of shapes up then with the seven? Well, the seven stories, um, you, what they do is what the whole first part of the book is all about culture and the seven pillars of culture. And then you infuse the culture with these seven stories. Culture is the always on operating system that guides behavior in your organization, even when there is no one around to reward, punish or control that behavior. Right. So people just know what to do. 
So you establish that culture first. And the whole first part of the book uh, is about how to establish culture, identify and establish culture. And then the seven stories, we start with, you know, everything from creation and origin. How did this begin? What is the inciting incident that allowed the first people to create that, uh, that central value proposition that moves things forward, right? Second thing, it's all about identities, beliefs, and values. Who are we as people? What are our most profound beliefs and values that drive us forward? What, what, what must we never violate? What must we always adhere to? So we go through those kinds of things. Uh, story number three is all about the big idea. And the big idea is that central guiding, uh, guiding concept that assembles everything else around it. For Apple, it might be design and ease of use and elegance of experience, those kind of things. The only thing that, uh, you know, that violates that to me is iTunes, right? In iTunes, I don't get the uh, clunky interface, things like that. But most Apple products, you know, elegant, design, simple to use, intuitive. Those are the values that really drive that big idea. Uh, story number four is all about the enemy we face. And the enemy we face is not only, you know, is something that can be an individual, but it can also be the elements. It could be a hurricane. You know, uh, the West uh, Coast, East Coast of uh, the U.S. right now is really getting together to um, to be able to, what is it, uh, batten down for the various hurricane season. That's going to happen, right? So we battle against someone or something. But it can also be not something you're against, but something you're for. So you can say you're against, uh, what is it, uh, childhood poverty. Or you can say you are for adult literacy. And those are just different frames, right? Different concepts, but the spin on is different, whether it's a positive frame or, or a negative frame. Uh, story number five is the mighty wins. And every organization has a macro set of trends that it is fitted within. And macro trends of various kinds of societal trends, technological, economic, environmental, political, and legislative trends. And so when you are on trend, you have the power of all this free wind to power your ship sails. And I say every business is like a sailing ship, but you need free, you need the power of the wind. Sometimes there's no wind, which means that you have to power everything yourself. So you might as well be on trend. If you're off trend, your boat's going to capsize. So we need to identify these six macro trends and identify how we can be more aligned with all of this free wind power. Story number six is all about the journey we must undertake. And that is, you know, if the first five stories are true, if they are true, there's a little equal sign. If they're believable and true, there's a little equal sign. And it's obvious that this is the journey we must undertake. You know, it is so obvious and so evident that these are the next steps that, the, that everybody is ready to take those with you. But you need one more story. And that final story is the why we will win story. And so now here's a journey we must undertake. Here's why we will win. And so the why we will win story encompasses what we call not only the process of how we are going to take go to victory, but also what we call keystones. And keystones are those things that guarantee the win. So common keystones uh, throughout history have been superior God, okay, superior technology, superior strategy, superior people. There's hundreds of keystones. But when you give your people a why we will win story with the keystones, then the confidence goes through the roof 
and then you have real belief in the direction of your organization. And those are the seven stories. So when you got to point six there, the sixth story, I, the, the feeling I had there was from, I, I'm a marketer through and through, so I'm not a salesperson. And I felt really, really positive and really kind of empowered at that point level six, because the, the reason for it was what I'm then hearing is it's reasons to buy from the audience's perspective rather right. than actually having to sell to them. So you started off by saying, I'm a salesperson. But actually what you're doing is you're not selling, are you? Because by the time you get to point six, you've given them every reason to buy, which is just the most pure, perfect way to sell ultimately, isn't it? A There's something absolutely. nice about that. You know, I, the hero of your story is not you. The hero of your story is your customer, is your client. And you have that fundamentally puts you into the position of being that guide, that fairy godmother, the wise wizard that will enable the journey in, in the most you know, expedient and the most powerful and the most rewarding way possible. So that's what your company is. Your company's products and services then, therefore, are simply the tools to enable the transformation promise in the story that you're telling. So everything that we're doing is saying, you know, you're here, hero, okay? And you want to get here. And so this journey you have to take, you can do it on your own or you can do it with my tools and services. And so that's the equivalent of that magic elixir, the, uh, that uh, wand, in the magic wand, the incantation that you're going to give. And it is a very common type of uh, storyline. In fact, it's called the hero's journey or the monomyth. You know, a lot of people have written about these kind of things and very common legends and myths will have this baked into it. So you always have the hero, you know, that is just doing whatever they're doing at the, at the beginning. And then they're called to action, but they are reluctant to go to the call to action. But they meet somebody and they meet somebody that is going to help them to this inevitable call. You know, and so we go through it. And, you know, the most common recent example of that is probably Star Wars. You know, it's probably Star Wars, but, you know, the ancient Greek myths and, and the Roman myths and things like that, they all had these baked into it. It's a very, very common common um, a model that writers will use, authors will use. Mm. So we, we started this, this conversation, I, I guess, well, I, I teed this up by saying, you know, this is what, you know, charismatic leaders would be looking for, but... It feels to me that this is just so much greater than just purely leadership. I mean, yes, clearly this can manifest within a, a leadership scenario and can make you very, very clear communicator, can get your whole team or your whole business on side, et cetera, et cetera. But actually, this could apply equally so to a very small team meeting where you're pitching an idea to the rest of your colleagues in a small meeting room and you just want to kind of get your idea out there. It feels like these seven stories are the it's almost it's the mantra for being influential for negotiating in a way where the person on the end of the audience feels, well, actually, this was kind of my idea because I've kind of bought into this and now I'm really I'm part of this. It's it's a very collaborative way of communicating, isn't it? It's about the only way your prospects, your uh, your people at large, the way you understand your world is through the stories you tell yourself about the world. 
So the only way you can get somebody to understand you is by telling your story. The only way they can show you that they understand you is by repeating that story, you know, with that empathy and that understanding and that insight and to be able to show those knowledge gaps, you know, that you may not have considered yet. And when you do that, when people hear their story, they identify with the storyteller. Uh, I, I have a line that I use with, um, with my uh, with my coach coaching uh, clients, and that is that the spell is cast when they immerse themselves in the stories you tell. So the story is such an immersive experience that you are completely lost. You know the reality, objectively out here where you're at, is completely distant, and you are completely immersed in the story. And we've all had that experience in a great movie setting, for example, in the theater, where you're completely lost in the moment and you are in absolute awe of what is the spectacle on the screen. And I've had that experience multiple times. And, you know, and when a, a story, when a movie doesn't deliver that, then it's a bad movie. <laughs> That's what it comes mm -hmm. down to. The last movie that I really saw where that uh, really took place was Dune. And you're completely immersed in the in the storytelling, the the imagery, the visuals of various kinds, these the sound, you know, uh, just the entire spectacle. You are immersed in it, and that's when the magic happened. The spell has been cast, and so ultimately, we are all in that business of storytelling to the level of immersive experience, where people can visualize themselves, they can see themselves, they can they can completely feel themselves in that future moment. And when they do that, then the process of buying into, okay, no one wants to be sold anything, but they buy into this idea of that future projection. Mm, I, I really, really appreciate you sharing the, you know, the cinematography uh, kind of angle there, because I think, you know, for a lot of us, that is the real kind of moment where I think, you know, as part of this storytelling, you know, where people will really get it because we've all got a favourite film or we've all got a, a movie in the last you know, 12 months that we've seen and really enjoyed because we just could not escape from that, that theatre or that, you know, that screen. And, and we know the reason why. And we know that, as you say, it was just immersive to, to all senses of the word. And I think, you know, when it comes to maybe doing a presentation at work, when it comes to, you know, engaging in a sales situation with a customer, when it comes to talking to your partner, for example, over, you know, the next big idea that you've got for where you're going to be going for vacation or something like that. You know, there, there's so many different opportunities for practicing this, isn't it? This isn't just purely for a leadership standing in front of, um, you know, your, your sort of whatsoever, your right? You know, if you have kids, you're in the business of storytelling. Okay. And the stories you tell are all about, you know, uh, how to get along in this world, how to, what is it, you know, uh, make the most of your opportunities, how to, how to protect yourself. You know, all of these can be put forward in facts or they can be memorable made memorable in story and story sticks the story you know people have a really tough time remembering facts they have next to no uh effort in remembering stories stories are very powerful our brain has through eons of evolution been uh completely programmed and evolutionarily wired to remember stories and back, you know, in the nomad tribes, you know, 30,000 years ago, 100, like the first humans, 
uh, modern humans would have come out of uh, out of Africa two million years ago. Like Homo sapiens came out about three hundred thousand years, two hundred thousand to three hundred thousand years ago. That's the current iteration of modern humans, right? So Neanderthals are there, Homo habilis was there, all these kind of people. But Homo sapiens, one of the clearest things that they did, and sapien means wise. Okay, and one of the clearest things that allowed them to be to to be wise is the ability to retain and create insight, uh, find insight in the various knowledge, the facts, and things like that. And the biggest part of that was stories. And so this idea, this idea of being able to cumulatively build upon the stories that you have, and that's how knowledge took place. Right? You know, from the instant that we were able to control fire. From the instant that we were able to control fire, right? We were on our way to developing the atomic bomb. It, it, it was inevitable. <laughs> it was inevitable because of the rate of cumulative knowledge. It's all based on story, though. You know, and the story is potential, possibility. Uh, oh, that didn't work, but this is why. And you tell stories, right? And then you the, the facts are there, but until the facts are imbued with meaning, it has a tough time staying. So we want to be able to create facts with meaning, which means that you have to be a great storyteller. Mm, so how much of this is evidence-based? I mean, you know, I'm thinking from a, a marketing or commercial angle, you know, you're going into a customer situation or you're crafting something for your website, uh, for example. I mean, how much would you feel things need to be stories for stories sake or do they need to be very kind of evidence-based so they're kind of underpin underpinned or their foundations are, are based on fact well we always talk about you know first of all all of these things have to do with um with the idea that facts of some kind you can't get away from this idea of facts right um although many religions have <laughs> you know a lot many religions are based purely in dogma Purely in dogma, you know, purportedly, you know, God-given, uh, what is it, uh, insight and stories and things like that, right? Uh, so you can actually develop a lot of that based on this. But when it comes to marketing at the level of uh, selling a product or service, then we really have to show how that product or service is going to physically transform that, uh, that uh, purchaser's life. You know, so how will it be made better, more convenient, faster, stronger, whatever else it is? But it's only at the point where you can translate those facts uh, into meaning. What is it that it means to that prospect uh, that you are able to create that forward momentum to purchase? And the fastest way to create meaning is through story. That's what it comes down to. So you can't get away from the facts because sooner or later, if it's a bogus product, you're going to be found out. Right. And in an interconnected world like ours, you know, the Internet is going to quickly disseminate your you're a fraud, your bogus right to a lot of people. But the moment that we have a legitimate product creating legitimate value, uh, that the facts are what create that value, but then it's transformed into meaningful story. Now we have the basis of creating a brand. And that's the whole purpose of this. So, so, so I'll, I'll give you an example with Coca-Cola. Yeah, I was going to say, say, bring that one to life because that, that's really interesting, isn't it? Yeah, I'll give you an example of Coca-Cola and Pepsi. Now, at its core, Coca-Cola and Pepsi are the dominant colas in the world today. 
And, you know, they both have a storied history, right? You know, um, you know, Dr. Pepper was pretty close to the initial innovations of that time as well, right? But Dr. Pepper is way, way down the way in the way of market domination. The number one cola in the world is Coca-Cola, and they have taken great lengths to, uh, to shepherd their brand. Uh, if you recall in the you know, early 70s, they had that Hilltop commercial. You and I are about the same age where they had all the people from uh, the variety, all the different uh, nations of the world come together on a Hilltop in Italy and uh, talk about the world coming together, right? I'd like to teach the world to sing. And they have been actively, uh, what is it, shepherding that brand with all sorts of iconic imagery and ideas and stories, especially the Santa Claus image, the, you know, the fat, jolly old guy, you know? enjoying a Coke was actually a Coke innovation. Coca-Cola <laughs> are the people behind the current, um, the current iteration of the Santa Claus image. <laughs> That's all Coke. And so what it comes down to is that, you know, in the seventies and eighties, Pepsi decided to challenge Coke for market, for market uh, shelf space and such. And they launched the Pepsi uh, challenge. And so they have two, uh, two uh, hidden uh, colas and you get people of various countries tying the two colas. What do you prefer? And the vast majority preferred the taste of Pepsi. Interesting. Pepsi. So they, they did that and, and such. And one of the things behind it was that, you know, it, people in the short term do prefer a sweeter taste. Okay. In the initial taste test, right? So they're not gulping whole jugs of Coca-Cola or Pepsi. They're doing small tastes. And so Pepsi had, because it's a sweeter drink, uh, had a slight edge there. And of course, they won the Pepsi challenge. That's the fact. But here's the absolute premise behind this entire thing for market domination on the shelf. No one drinks Coke blindfolded. <laughs> no one drinks Coke blindfolded. And Coca-Cola has double the market share of Pepsi. Double. That's a, my most recent stat on that was from 2018. So it wasn't that long ago. They've been competing for decades, right? Now, here's even more, something even more, even more fascinating. When they put people into an fMRI machine, functional magnetic resonance imaging, and they give them a Coke and they give them a Pepsi, the Coke drinkers, and when they know it's a Coke or a Pepsi, when they know it is, the fMRI machine will actually see the brain light up even more so doubly so than the Pepsi drinkers. They are having literally a better physical and emotional experience knowing they are drinking Coke. Isn't that amazing? How did that happen? It's not based on the fact of the, that they're drinking Coke. It is, has to do with the brand emotional experience that they are drinking this product. And who controlled that? Coca-Cola over the last 130 years. Right. There's, I asked for an example. I got an example. That's just <laughs> brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of, again, the, again, your storytelling is so powerful because I know the story, but the way that you conveyed it there was yeah, really, really compelling. So thank you for that. And I think for, for the audience, if, if there's anyone listening who, you know, isn't aware of that story, I can um, certainly vouch for the, uh, the accuracy of it as well, because, you know, it is an example I've used a number of times myself, but not as eloquently as Carrie and I have to say. So thank you for sharing that one. It feels like then, I mean, using that Coke example, but then some of the other 
things that you've been talking about, it feels like there's quite a bit of kind of pre-planning that needs to go on here to be able to use the seven stories within, say, one master story. It, there's kind of a bit of pre-thinking going on here, isn't there? Well, you have to be cognizant of what what you have to be cognizant of how the human mind absorbs information. And it's not, you know, if they absorb a fact that you've only engaged the logical brain. And, but if they have the emotional experience of that transform, transformative state that you are promising uh, through your sales and marketing efforts, right? Once they have that, uh, that emotional experience of what the future possibility could be, then we have this ability to create that want and that desire, okay? Which is beyond a need. Now we have wants and desires. And so if you want to paint that picture, how do you paint that picture? And these are the seven stories that you will tell. And you don't have to tell all seven in, in a single telling. But for the brand purposes, and a brand, you know, ultimately a brand is about meaning. Okay, that's what a brand is. What is the meaning? So, you know, people talk about rebranding and what did you do? You updated your logo. Well, that's not rebranding. Okay, that means you've updated your visual assets. That's all you've done there. You know, your graphic assets. Real, true rebranding is about re-meaning. So you transform the meaning. Uh, in 1924, Marlboro cigarettes was introduced as a ladies' cigarette. It was a woman's cigarette. Uh, but Marlboro, which was uh, put out by the Philip Morris Company, in 1955, uh, they hired an advertising agency. I think it was McCann. Uh, to reimagine what it could be as a men's cigarette. And so 1955, they brought out the, a whole bunch of different uh, ideas. You know, they, they had the Marlboro or the Lumberjack, the Marlboro Sailor. The one that took off was the Marlboro Cowboy. Within one year, sales had gone up to three, up by 3,258%, something crazy. They went up to $5 billion in annual sales, okay? So a 3,200% increase. Within two years, it had gone up to $20 billion. Same cigarette, and it's not even the same target market. Now it's a men's cigarette. It was a lady cigarette. The lady cigarette, you know, the tagline in 1924 was, as mild as may. That's very unmasculine. Right? It's not a masculine statement. So this idea of Marlboro country, mythical Marlboro country, the cowboy, free, masculine, rugged, independent, all these kinds of things, catapulted that cigarette into a $20 billion category in the 1950s and all through iconic imagery uh, like that. So that is a, the, um, the immense power of reimagining the meaning of your brand. How do you do it? Storytelling. What 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 do they do? They substituted the story there. And the story now is mythical Marlboro country where that rugged independent cowboy gave all the traits that uh, all the values, all the traits, character traits that that cowboy has can be yours as well. You just have to put one of these in your mouth. Yeah, and I kind of get a flashback to my my Apple thing there. It's like it's lifestyle, it's brand, it's kind of, yeah, the, this is, it's, it's irresistible. I think I was looking for the word, and it isn't, it's more than immersive, isn't it? It becomes, to a point, it becomes irresistible. And when it hits that moment, there is no changing, there's yeah. no going back. Yeah. And, and it's and massively commercially powerful too, isn't it? 
Well, it's you know it's commercially powerful because it is it is a core aspect of who you are and how you receive information and become who you want to be. So everything that uh, is behind you there, Neil, is a reflection of Neil Wilkins' identity. That's that you know, and the core of identity is values and beliefs. That's the core mm -hmm. of identity. And then there's a whole bunch of other things, you know, Neil is in, uh, in the UK and, you know, Neil is a marketer and all that kind of stuff. That's all superficial type of stuff. When you come down to core values and belief systems, that's why, why are you a marketer? Why have you never chosen to leave the UK? I don't know whether you have or not, right? Uh, you know, uh, why you have all of these ideas about who you are as a person and how it's reflected in what you do and what you uh, what you believe in mm. and so again just translating this into the the whole kind of brand marketing thing is we've got to start paying attention haven't we as brand owners as marketers even of small startups all the way through to the big kind of global um sort of you know multinationals we've got to start paying real attention to this because this can make or break everything and like you say it doesn't really matter what your pricing is or your actual product if you get this bit wrong people you're on a hiding to nothing. I mean, this is going to go south very, very quickly, isn't it? Yeah. And what I'd say to anybody listening to this uh, podcast is that, you know what, you're already doing it. You may not be doing it very well, but you are doing it, right? And so your brand identity may be no identity. No one knows who you are, what you stand for, what your origin story is, what your transformation story is going to be, who you fight against or for. They don't understand any of these seven uh, absolutely essential aspects of brand meaning that people have to form in their head in order to truly buy into your brand religion. Mm. That's a, and what a beautiful way of kind of coming around full circle to kind of where we started, which was, you know, the whole thing that this has been going on for millennia. It really has. This is not new, but it is beautifully crafted in Karin's book, which I will put the link. Um, it's available, I think, um, Karin, is it on Amazon, isn't it? On so Amazon. Put the link the, below. Yeah, and it's available in all the Amazons, including .uk, and uh, it's called The Seven Essential Stories Charismatic Leaders Tell. Perfect. So I will put the link uh, for everyone to uh, experience this. So if you're responsible for any kind of communication, i.e. it's everybody, um, then this is certainly the book for you. Karen, this, this has been a really, really interesting journey, I think, for all of us, me definitely included. I'm going to start rethinking how I tell some of my stories, I think, because I, I do a lot of presentations, a lot of webinars, and I'm going to actually use this seven stories uh, approach actually my very next one i'm going to set myself the task of let's see if this works for me i know it will but let's see if this works for me to tell the next story in my next webinar because i have a sneaky feeling this is going to elevate things consistently and considerably you will have no choice but to have your presentation elevated by using these stories it, it it's reflexive it'll just work Brilliant. And thank you so much for your time today, Karen, because I know you're, you're a very busy guy and, uh, you know, really appreciate it. And I, I know everybody listening to this is going to be uh, you know, noting down those seven points and thinking, right, where do we start? Well, you start by buying the book because that'll give you the backstory and the background as to really how to do it. But if you just want to make a start today, yeah, there's no time like the present to begin and, to think this through. 
And very quickly, Neil, if, uh, before we're going to Amazon, you can actually go to my website, strategypeak.com. On the right-hand side, you can download an infographic with all seven stories, right? And you can do that for free. Perfect. Thank you so much. Well, I think we're done. I mean, that is kind of, yeah, I just want to get on and do it now. You've, you've inspired me. So thank you so much for uh, sharing all of that so eloquently and with all the examples as well, which uh, in themselves are storytelling. So thanks so much for your time today. Neil, thanks for having me on your show.